0: this cold winter morning. I'm so grateful we get to gather together to worship the Lord together this morning. It is great to have the privilege and the blessing of assembling as God's people. Now, as you're gathering, just a few announcements for us as we get started this morning, things we want you to be aware of in the life of the church. First of all, you hear us mention pretty regularly opportunities to pray together. We have an opportunity every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. We also have on the second and fourth Sundays of the month. We have a Sunday afternoon prayer gathering here in the sanctuary. I want to let you know the time is changing for that one starting today. It's going to move back 30 minutes from 4 o'clock. To 4:30, So it'll be this afternoon from 4.30 to 5.30 here in the sanctuary, and then in the second and fourth Sundays moving forward, we'll have it at 4.30 here in the sanctuary. I also want to remind you, Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, those are due back today, and so this is a great opportunity to pack gifts for kids and to send those to the nation so we can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you've not packed one yet, it is not too late. We are not taking them to the distribution center until tomorrow afternoon, so if you're like, oh, I wish I had done this and I haven't done it yet, go pack one today. And just get it to us by lunchtime tomorrow, and we can still get that out to it. So hope you'll be part of that as well. I also want to remind you we're having a thing for two weeks called Gateway at the Movies. We had this last Tuesday night. A big group of us went to see Sabina. It was an amazing testimony of her faithfulness to Christ during the midst of some of the awful times of the Nazi years. It was a faith-building, encouraging movie. We have another one coming up this coming Tuesday night. It's called Journey with Jesus. It is an exploration of the Holy Land and seeing Israel and seeing where a lot of these things we study took place. And so that one, there are still tickets available for that. The opportunity to get childcare has ended for this one, but there are still tickets for the movie. And so if you'd like to participate in that, registration ends tonight. So you can still get tickets through our church website, gatewaybaptist.com, and join us Tuesday night at the movies of the AMC up here at 7 Now, two important things that relate to the life of the church for our members. First of all, deacon nomination process has been going on the last several weeks. We've preached about the role of deacons in the church. We've talked about the qualifications for deacons. We've given you the deacon nomination forms. Those are due back today. If you've not had a chance to complete them, there's some forms in the back of the sanctuary. Stand back there. There's some in the hallway outside the restrooms here. There's some in the gym building as well. Those are due back by the end of the day today. There's a box in the back of the sanctuary. If you've not filled one out before you leave campus today, would you take one and prayerfully complete one and drop it back in that box? by the door those are due you today. Also want to encourage you to mark your calendars. December 12th, it's a Sunday at 5 p.m. is our annual member meeting. We're not your traditional Baptist church that does a monthly business meeting. We do a once a year business meeting where we give you updates on all the ministries and we celebrate what God has been doing in our midst and you have a chance to ask questions of all of our different ministry leaders to understand what's happening at Gateway. It's where we, a few weeks before, we'll give you the budget for that, the proposed budget for the next year, and you'll have a chance to review that and ask questions, and we'll discuss that. So a lot happens in that annual member meeting that's, again, December 12th, 5 p.m. Please mark your calendars for that. One last announcement for you this morning. We have a bunch of college students involved in the life of Gateway, and many of them are also involved in something called the Baptist Campus Ministries over on the AUM campus. And we like to partner with the Baptist Campus Ministries in different ways. And they're coming out this, the next two, this upcoming week with their annual Thanksgiving dinner for college students. It's a big outreach for the ministry there on campus. where It's their largest meal where college students from across the campus can come together and hear the gospel and be encouraged to pursue Christ. And so we want to partner and help them in practical ways by sending them desserts. So if you would like to help feed the college students desserts for their Thanksgiving luncheon, we need those by Wednesday morning at 930. So if you'll just see CJ or call the church office, we just need you to bring them here to the campus by 9.30 on Wednesday morning so we can get those desserts to um, the college students. So thanks for helping out with that. Well, as we prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand, please. I'm going to read to us from Psalm 103 this morning, as we're going to begin by singing this morning about the salvation we have in Christ and proclaiming that we stand forgiven and just to remind ourselves and remind one another and to worship the Lord for who he is and what he's done for. So let's just be reminded of his grace to us. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Let's sing to our Lord and celebrate His faithfulness today.
1: You will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high. Exalted in every nation, your sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high. Be magnified. Let's be magnified
2: Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Father, we gather this morning to worship, to worship you, our holy God. We bow in reverent awe as we consider all your mighty works including the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son and your Spirit. As we gather this morning to worship, Lord, we lift up to you the ministries here at Gateway and in our community. We pray this morning for the college ministry as Seth and Megan disciple and encourage the, the, the young people, Lord, I just pray for that ministry. I pray that they would grow in their love for Christ, and his word, for wisdom as they navigate the college environment and the decisions that they will have to make in the future. Lord, we just pray for Seth and Megan that you'd give them great wisdom as they serve this community. Father, we also want to pray for the ministry of Safety Net. We think of that ministry, and especially during the holiday season, as these teenagers who are struggling, that, Lord, that the gospel would be heard and they would look to Christ for hope and transformation. Father, we thank you for the local ministries in this, this community. We thank you for the churches. And we think of Jason, uh, Powell at Jesus City Church in downtown Montgomery. Lord, I thank you for his heart to evangelize and what a blessing he's been to the OCF community out of the base. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless that ministry and that the gospel would go forward and reach many in the city of Montgomery. Father, we also want to lift up our president and our government and leaders. You call us to pray for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful life. Father, we realize this morning that there is much turmoil in our nation. We pray that you would grant wisdom and grace to those who govern at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal levels. And I pray for us, Lord, as a people, that we would model unity and love and pray for all who are in authority. Father, we also want to think about global missions and what you are doing there. We think of the people in Brazil. Lord, there's a team that's left already from Texas who are traveling to plant a church there in, in northeast Brazil. And we pray that as they go, that you would allow them to see much fruit in that ministry. Father, we pray that the gospel would advance in the, that region of Brazil. Lord, I pray that you would give the church planter and his family grace and perseverance as they share the love of Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to give and for those who have given. Lord, you have blessed everyone in this body here with so many good things, material blessings. Lord, I pray that as we give, we would do so with joyfulness, with generosity. I thank you for how you have blessed this church. I pray, Lord, that we would take that which you have blessed us with and we would give it to the advancement of the gospel. And this morning, Lord, as we hear from your word, we pray for Grady that you would just anoint him with your spirit. And Lord, as the word is proclaimed this morning, that we would be attentive, that Lord, it would lead us into a greater love for Christ, for repentance and sanctification as we hear from your truth. I pray, Lord, that this morning that it's, the word would go forth and do its work in our hearts and our lives. So, Lord, we commit all of this to you this morning. We thank you for what you're going to do, and we give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Children, grades 1 to 4, you
0: are dismissed to kids' worship through those doors right there. It's good to be back with you, Gateway family, this morning. I want you to find John chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word. John chapter 3 this morning. We are spending a year seeking to be more rooted and grounded in what we believe. We're using a catechism to guide us through as we try to see the big picture of all of Scripture. Now we paused that for the last several weeks to talk about important issues in the life of the church, particularly the role of deacons and the qualifications for deacons. And as I mentioned earlier, the announcement time, that process is ongoing. So again, a reminder to our members Deacon nomination forms are due today. You can drop them in the box on your way out. And there's empty or blank forms there as well for you in the back of the room. But today we're jumping back into the questions that are guiding us through our study right here. And we're doing two questions this morning. We're doing questions 27 and 28 of the New City Catechism together this morning. We're thinking about these together because they're so closely related. And because our text today honestly addresses both questions. So our questions for the morning are this. Are all people saved through Christ we're going to follow up with the second question of what happens to those not united to Christ by faith. Well, our second question obviously answers the first question. If you've been with us at Gateway any length of time, you already know that not all people are saved through Christ. And so we'll see that from God's word this morning. But then we're going to jump into what happens to those not united to Christ by faith. Now to answer these questions this morning, we're going to go to what is perhaps the most well-known verse. In all of Scripture, and that is John three sixteen. And we're going to look at John three sixteen. But we're going to look at the verses that follow as well, because they answer both of these questions for us: Are all people saved through Christ, and what happens to those not united to faith by Christ? Now, to understand John three sixteen, we need to understand the bigger context of what is going on here. So, if you go all the way back to the beginning of John chapter three this morning, this is the context of what's happening. You have a man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders at the time. And he comes to Jesus at night to talk to Jesus. And Jesus instructs Nicodemus with some very profound things. And you see it in John chapter 3, verse 3. You'll have that up on the screen for But in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answers Nicodemus and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is where we get that phrase, born again, that we sometimes use to describe people going from lostness to salvation of believing in Christ. We say they are born again. It comes from John chapter 3, verse 3. Now, this imagery of being born again of a, spiritual, of a spiritual birth is pretty confusing to Nicodemus. So what follows in the verses next are Nicodemus asking Jesus questions. How can this be? How can a person really be born again? Nicodemus is confused, and Jesus answers. And all culminates in verses 14 and 15, right before the famous verse of John 3, 16. We see the culmination of what Jesus says to Nicodemus. So in verse 14... Jesus says to him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's a title that Jesus uses for himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in verses 1 to 16, there's this conversation, 1 to 15, this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, culminating with Jesus will have to be lifted up, he will have to die, so that those who believe in him can have eternal life. Now in verse 16... The conversation changes here, because now no longer is it Jesus and Nicodemus talking. In verse 16, now John, the author of the gospel, is summarizing for us the significance of what Jesus has just said in the previous 15 verses. So verses 16 to 21 is John's summary of this teaching of Jesus had with Nicodemus. Now, John doesn't tell us what Nicodemus did. He leaves us hanging, which is kind of frustrating, right? It'd be nice to know what Nicodemus did here. But we don't know. John just stops the account with this final call of Jesus to him, to believe on him, to have eternal life. And then John turns the focus to us and to all those who will hear to show us the significance of what Jesus just said and show us how we must respond to the truth that Jesus has just laid out here for Nicodemus. And in so doing this, in this beautiful summary in verses 16 to 21, we find our answers to our questions. Are all people saved through Christ? And what happens to those who are not united to Christ by faith? So with that in view, let's look at John three sixteen and the verses that follow. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and I also have the words on the screen for you. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. We thank you that you've shown us who you are and who we are and what it looks like to follow you. And Lord, as we look at some very familiar words to many of us I pray they come alive this morning, that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us, to open our eyes to the, the depths of the gospel here. And yet, Lord, as we look at some of these, these hard truths, these things that we don't necessarily like to think about, but the fate of those who do not believe, God, I pray you would just soften our hearts and you break our hearts over this. This would not just be intellectual and academic this morning, but God, that you would be working and sowing our hearts so where our whole perspective on the world is what you would desire for it to be. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So to answer our questions, are all people saved and what happens to those who are not? The starting point is that first question, that not all people are saved. Or in the words of the Catechism, not all people are united to Christ by faith. If you think about what we were looking at before we paused to do our study on deacons, we kept using the term of being redeemed, being rescued, being bought back. Not all people are redeemed. Now where do we see that here in this particular text? We need to go to verse number 18 this morning, and we see it here in a contrast that John gives us in summarizing Jesus' message. Look at verse 18 this morning. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So notice the contrast that is set here for us. There's only two groups of people in the world when it comes to describing faith. There are those who believe in Christ, and those who do not believe in Christ. Every single person we meet here in Montgomery, or if we travel to the uttermost parts of the world, will fall into one of these two categories, those who believe and those who do not believe. That is the dividing line, and the dividing line is belief here. Now, what does it mean to believe? Well, when John uses believe here, he's using the same thing that Paul's talking about when he talks about faith. To believe is to have faith, to have faith is to believe. These are synonymous terms here for us. Now, we use these terms a lot, but what exactly does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe. There's an author I really like. His name is Richard Phillips. He's written a great book about biblical masculinity. He's written some great commentaries on some of the New Testament books as well. And in his commentary on John, he says there's really three things that are required to have faith. And this is, I found it helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you because we use these terms a lot. He said to have faith involves three things. Number one, it involves knowledge. You have to have knowledge. If you have faith, there's something that you must be believing in. There's some truth that you have heard. And that's true here for us. To have saving faith, there's a particular knowledge that we must first have in order to understand who God is. We see that in verse number 18 again this morning. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed, notice this, in the name of the only Son of God. Now when you look in Scripture, you see the, the concept of a name Name doesn't just mean the person's name. The name means everything that that person represents, everything that name represents, everything about that person. Name is used to describe the totality of the person. So for us to believe in the name of the Son of God means that we believe, we have knowledge about Jesus, that He is fully God, that He is fully man, that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life, that He willingly did a sacrificial death, that He literally bodily rose from the dead on the third day, that He ascended back to heaven, that He's... Sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things, that he's promised to return again, that and so much more. But it's also believing what he said about us, that we're sinners who could never get to him on our own, that he has come to rescue us because we could not get to him. And so faith begins with knowledge of who Jesus is. But it can't stop there. You can know who Jesus is and not have faith. We see this with the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. They know the truth But they do not believe, they do not have faith. So we start with knowledge, that's not enough. Number two, we need something we call assent, or conviction that that knowledge is true. Assent, that we believe that those truths are in fact true. We're not just saying, yeah, that's a nice fact. We're actually believing it. We say, yes, I know this is completely true. Again, it's it's a conviction of things and accepting them. But we must not stop there. There's a third aspect of faith, and that's the important one for us, there's trust there's commitment. It's not just enough to say, yeah, I know it, or yeah, I know it's true, but it's the truth that changes us. And this is what we saw when we studied the Gospel of John almost five years ago. That true faith changes us. True faith is a gift from God that radically alters our life because we're believing in the name of Christ. We're putting our whole confidence and faith into following Him, and that changes us. You see that in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things, this whole book was written so that you may believe. You may know the facts. You may believe they're true and it may change you because you're putting your trust in it. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing you may have life in his name. That your life is going to be changed because you have put your faith wholly in Christ. True faith changes us. Because with that view of faith, that faith is knowledge of Christ, it's a conviction that is true and it's a trust and commitment to him. The reality becomes very clear that not all have this type of faith. And friends, not all in churches have this type of faith as well. That only those who are believing in the name of Christ, trusting and committed to Him, will have it. Again, go back to verse 18 of our text. Whoever believes, whoever knows who Jesus is, whoever accepts Him as true, and then trusts their whole life into Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not know who He is, whoever does not ascend to these things, whoever does not trust Him fully, is condemned already. He's not believed in the name, the totality of the only son of God. There's only two groups here in the world. Now, for those who believe, who have true faith, there's an amazing promise of hope here. And we've been seeing this week after week after week. I want you to just be reminded of it here in verse 16. Go back up. For God so loved the world and gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish to have eternal life. For those who believe in Christ or this type of life-changing faith, not just they said a prayer and they're not going to hell, but they've actually trusted their whole life into Christ and into his care. Those people who've trusted in Christ who have true faith, they get this amazing promise that they get mercy. They do not get what they deserve. They will not perish. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but they will not receive punishment for their sins. God will spare them that. They receive mercy, but they also receive grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. They will also gain eternal life. God's presence now that we'll see him face to face forever. Friends, that's been our focus a lot recently in just talking about redemption. that We get this mercy, this forgiveness of our sins, and we get this grace, these things we do not deserve from the Lord. That's the promise for the redeemed. But our question this morning is, what happens to those who do not believe? And friends, again, the reminder, the reality check for us is many, many, if not most, do not believe. Matthew chapter seven, verse 13, Jesus warns us of this and tells us of this. It's a very sobering text for us in the Scriptures. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Are what? Many. Many are going to go down this easy path of not believing, of not following Him, of not trusting their whole lives to Him. Many will find that. Then in verse 14, He follows up. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Are few. So our question for the morning, friends, is what happens to the many? The many are on that path to destruction. And friends, as we look at this answer now, we really need the Holy Spirit to move us from just intellectual knowledge that this is true to a heart-level response to this. Because these are, these, what we're talking about this morning can make us uncomfortable. It's hard, but it's true, and it should move us. There should be a heart response to this truth that we're looking at about what happens to the many who are on the path of Destruction. So what happens to the many who do not believe? There's two key words in John 3 that answer this question. Those words are perish and condemn. Perish and condemn. Now these are synonyms for the judgment of God, but they emphasize really different aspects of the judgment. So let's look at both of these together. Let's start with the idea of perishing. Go back to verse 16 here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the focus of verse 16, what we normally think about what John 3 is what the redeemed receive, what those who believe in him get, that we don't have to perish, that we get eternal life. But the parallel truth is also here, that those who do not believe will perish and will not gain this everlasting life. Now, what does it mean to perish? Well, literally it means to die, but when you see perish in Scripture, it goes much beyond just physical death. Perishing in Scripture is, is is a term for describing experiencing the wrath of God. To perish in Scripture is to experience the wrath of God, and the wrath of God means God's holy anger against sin. So what this is telling us is that all those who do not believe will perish. They will experience the wrath of a holy God. It's not just that they die when their physical body ends and they're somehow annihilated. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching they will experience the wrath of God, and they will experience it forever. When Scripture talks about perishing, it's an eternal experience of the wrath of God. Now, I mentioned this when we studied God's wrath earlier in our study going through this, this year of being rooted, but I want to remind you of something we said some months ago. When we look at Scripture, there's more references to the wrath and judgment of God than there is to the love of God. Now, the love of God is real, and we focus on that a lot, and we should focus on that, but there's more references in Scripture to the judgment of God, the wrath of God, His justice, and all those things, than to His love, and we often don't let our minds go there, but we need to, to be rooted in what the Bible says. I want to make sure we understand the significance of so I want you to see just a few of the many places in the Scripture where we see this idea of perishing because of our sins. Let's start with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. This is written in 2 Thessalonians to believers who are suffering. So Paul's giving the people in Thessalonica hope in the midst of their suffering, and he's pointing them to eternity and reminding them what they're going to receive because of God's grace, but also what's going to happen to those who oppose God, who hate God, who are persecuting them. So here's some of the context to get to where we're trying to get to this morning. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Verse 6. And since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So here we go. So here's this idea of Jesus coming back to second coming of Christ. He's going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey The gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now just pause right there. Notice the connection here. He talks about that they're gonna suffer. Go back one verse there, if you will. Thanks. If you notice here, there's the people who do not know God, but there's also those who do not obey the gospel. That goes hand in hand because true faith changes us. True faith is a radical transformation God gives to us. And so it's demonstrated with obedience to the Lord and a desire to obey Him. And so for those who do not know God, It's evident in their fruits, evident in their lack of desire to obey Him. Now in verse 9, what happens to those who do not know God, who do not have saving faith? They will suffer the punishment, notice this, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That word eternal is important there because this is again a word for forever. When people who do not believe when they die, they don't just disappear. There's eternal destruction, eternal punishment. Now what does that look like? We get a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible It's the book that the same author who wrote the Gospel of John wrote for us. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. I want you to see this. In Revelation 20, 10, it starts with talking about the devil and the beast. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day about the beast and the false prophet and all that. But the focus here is where they are for eternity because of their rejection of God, their rebellion against God. But unless we think that's just for them... We get on a few verses to verse number 15 as well. In verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now the book of life is a description in Scripture for the names of all the redeemed. For all those who believe and have faith in Christ, all those who are the elect of God, they are the redeemed, their names in the book of life. If anyone's name is not found that if there's anyone who is not the elect, who be- has not believed in Christ, they also will be thrown into this lake of fire. This is not just in the John's writings or Paul's writings. We see this in the Gospels as well in Jesus' own teaching, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a contrast there, and both of them show eternity of very different destinies. There's many more we could see, but let's just pull those three together. Friends, hell and eternal punishment is not just a cartoon story, it's not a myth not just a fairy tale that Christians invented to scare people into the church. It is a true, real, terrifying reality that awaits all those who do not know Christ, all those who have not believed in Him and have life-transforming faith in Him. In other one thing the Scripture does show us as well, that once a person's soul is condemned to hell, there are no second chances. Jesus tells us in a parable in Luke chapter sixteen, verse twenty-six. I encourage you to read the whole parable later, but in Luke sixteen, it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And by God's grace, Lazarus ends up in heaven, and the rich man, who's rejected God, ends up in hell. And he's crying out. You have this incredible scene of him crying out, asking for second chance, space asking for people to go rescue his friends and family because he's in torment. And we're told this in the parable. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, where that those who have passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It's a sobering reality in this parable that Jesus tells to remind us there are no second chances. That What we do in Christ, with the Christ in this life, makes all the difference for all of eternity. And so for a person who does not believe, according to John chapter 3, they will perish. They will spend eternity apart from God in hell. But friends, that awful fate doesn't just begin when they die and they see God face to face and they're judged for their sin. It begins now. Look at verse 18. There's a second aspect of this judgment. Back in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned, this is next word, already. They are condemned already. Some of your translations may say they are judged already, and that's okay because the idea of condemned or judgment is both being used in the sense of an adverse judgment, of a guilty judgment. In other words, what this is telling us is that when a holy God looks on sinners now, he already proclaims them guilty. They're not okay until they get before the judgment seat. they already, because of their sin, they already are guilty. They already are separated from God. Yes, a future judgment is coming. What well, we just saw when a person stands before a holy God and hears him say what you see in Matthew seven twenty three, these sobering words that the lost will hear. When, Jesus, or when the, Jesus says "I'm out. depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Yes, that day is coming, but that judgment begins now. It's already upon those who do not believe. You go down a little bit further in John 3, John chapter 3, verse 36. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. Notice this remains. It's already there. It remains on Him. We saw this earlier in our study of the catechism. Those who do not believe, they're already guilty because we're born guilty. We're born with a sin nature. We're born with a nature we got all the way back from Adam. And so we're born with a sin nature that wants to sin. We're also born with an inherited guilt. We were born guilty sinners before God. And only by the redemption that comes to those who God draws to himself is there any hope of escaping the wrath of God. Only when we believe in Christ can we escape that. We are born guilty, and unless we are forgiven, we remain guilty. So for all those apart from Christ, the wrath of God already remains on them. What this is telling us is that for those who do not believe, judgment is both now and forever. That for those who do not believe in Christ, who do not put their faith and trust in Christ, do not trust Him alone for their salvation and give their lives to Him as Lord and as Savior, that they are experiencing judgment now and forever. They're already separated from God. They already are guilty. They're already experiencing His judgment. And it will climax and culminate on a day of future judgment when the eternal sentence is given. But some of, you, some of us may be thinking, but wait, that's not what we hear the most. What You listen to our culture. What do we hear all the time? God doesn't judge. There's a banner in front of a church here in Montgomery. I saw this weekend It has a huge banner in front of it that says, Jesus does not judge, neither do we. And this popular American concept that God will not judge, he loves you the way they are, you are, for instance, it may make people feel good, but it's not what the scripture says. Jesus loves people. Yes, that's God so loved the world, John three sixteen. but God is also a holy judge he will judge people. John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27. If we go ahead just to chapter 2. Because the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son, Jesus, also to have life in himself. Now, verse 27. And he has given him, Jesus, authority to execute what? Right. Judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So, yes, when I see this sign, I just grieve. Jesus doesn't judge. Read John five twenty seven. The Son of Man will judge the earth one day. Well, then someone might say, but what about verse 17 here? John 3:16 tells us God loves the world. What about verse 17? Go back to our text today. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, nor the world might be saved through him. So the objection might be, but look, even in John 3:17, we're told that Jesus he didn't come to condemn. He came to rescue. Let me explain it this way. That's someone, one of the authors I read this week said it so well. God did not send Jesus to call sinners to perish, Sinners were already going to perish without Jesus coming to die. So when Jesus came to die, that didn't make people guilty who do not believe. We were already guilty, and so he came to rescue us from that guilt that we had. If Jesus had never come, every sinner would still perish. If Jesus didn't come, everyone would still go to hell because, we didn't, because we've offended God. We've broken his standards. So Jesus did not come to condemn. We were already condemned. He came to rescue condemned people, to draw them to himself, to make a redeemed people for himself. He came to a world already condemned to call out a redeemed people. And for those who believe, their sins are forgiven. That's what he came to do. But for those who do not believe, he will be the holy judge we just read about in John 5, who will judge every sin. And friends, as hard as this is a lot of times to think about in here, let me remind us that God is just and God is right to punish every sin. This is not unfair of God. This is not, God is some tyrant for doing this. God is good and God is just and God is right to punish every sin. And verse 19 brings that out for us of this text from John 3. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The light has come into the world. This is a description of Jesus. Jesus is the light. He's pure. He's perfect. He's holy. And he's come in the world. It's a term Jesus used for himself, John chapter 12, verse 46. Notice how Jesus uses this term. He says, "I have come in the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." So Jesus is the light. So if we go back to verse 19 here, that He is the light who's come into the world, but people do not believe. Why? Because they love the darkness instead." Now we need to let that sink in, the weight of this, the weight of John 3:19, that Jesus came as a light into the world. And the people loved the darkness, the darkness being their evil, their sin, living their own way. And this rebellion, this loving the darkness, is even greater when it's contrasted with the light coming. Go back to verse 16. Notice what it says, for God so what? What's the next word? God God so loved the world. So God loves the world, and God gives a plan for redemption. Now verse 19, go back to verse 19. And he's given this plan of redemption, but the people loved the darkness. Because our rebellion is so much worse when it's contrasted with the love of God of making a way for us. Instead, we shake our fist at God and say, Nope, not your way, mine. I'm going to live for myself. That's why when we look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we see the weightiness of the reality of all of our sin. As is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so when a holy God punishes sin, he's not being a tyrant. He's not doing anything unjust. He's simply giving people what they deserve because the light has come in the world and the world has shaken its fist at God and said, I don't want the light. I love my sin. I love evil. I love doing things my way. And so a holy God must punish sin. It either takes an eternity for a person to bear the penalty for their sin, or Christ will bear it for them, for those who believe. So let's try to bring all of this together. What happens to those not united to Christ by faith? Here's our answer for the morning, trying to bring this together. Whoever does not put their faith in Christ is justly condemned already and forever. There's a typo on the screen, sorry. Whoever does not put their faith in Christ is justly condemned already and forever. Forever. Friends, that is what this all of John 3 is about. Again, we love John 3.16, but we must not see John 3.16 without the totality of what is being told to us here. What was just told to Nicodemus, who's wrestling with what eternal life is. Whoever, this is anyone, friends, this is a broad term. Those who have heard of Christ and do not believe, this is their faith. This whoever includes those who have heard of Christ. But they die still pondering it, not believing in friends. There's a whole summer but this includes those who've never heard of Christ as well. There's a real popular wrong thinking today that those who've never heard of Christ will be okay in the mercy of God. Friends, Romans 10 obliterates that one, that they cannot believe in one they've never heard. Faith is not, requires knowledge. If there's no knowledge of Christ, there is no salvation. And so that's a whole sermon for another day. But friends, whoever, whether they've heard of Christ and rejected Him, whether they've heard and they're pondering but they don't believe, whether they've never heard, this is whoever falls into that category. Whoever does not believe, regardless of the reason, They are condemned. They are already separated from God. Now they're already under His judgment. Now something that will culminate when they see Him face to face and they are condemned forever into hell to spend eternity paying the price for their offenses against God's holiness. And as terrifying as that is, God is just to do so because He is holy. In the words of Isaiah 53, we all have turned to our own ways. Whoever does not put their faith in Christ is justly condemned already and forever. As I was reading this week, I came across something from an author named James Montgomery Boyce. He's a great Bible scholar and commentator. He says this, and I thought this was just very fitting. He says, we may not like it, but whether we like it or not, these things are true from God's perspective. We've gone our own way. We've already committed the crime. Therefore, every one of us already stands under God's judgment. That's what we've been seeing in our rooted study, that apart from God redeeming us, this is all of our fate, but thankfully, praise God for Christ. That he's willing to take the sin upon himself, take the punishment upon himself, so that we can stand forgiven. But for those who do not believe in him, they're justly condemned now and forever. Now, what do we do with this truth, friends? What do we do with what we're looking at this morning in this text from John 3? Well, for some, you may need to repent. Going to church, praying a prayer doesn't save you, doesn't rescue you. The Bible talks about belief and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, not just as your Savior to get you out of hell, but as your Lord, the boss, the master of your life. And so if you're one who's never trusted Christ in such a way that your life is changing because you believe in Him, the starting point of this message today is for you to repent, for you to run to Jesus, acknowledging who He is, but crying out to Him to forgive you of your sins and to transform you and to be the Lord of your life. So I was reading this weekend, and James Montgomery Boyce said it so well. I just want you to read, I want to read to you what he said. He says, Have you believed in Jesus are you still in the category of those who stand condemned? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Do we believe in Jesus, or are we still in the category of those who stand condemned? There's only two roads, two destinies. If you've not already put your trust in Jesus and in what he has done for you, will you do it today? Will you believe on him? Someone says, well, I've been thinking about it. Thinking about it will not do. If you continue to think about it, you will think yourself into hell. Well, that's the thing, If you continue to think about it, you'll think yourself into hell. Another one says, "I'm praying about it." The Bible doesn't ask you to pray about it either. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible calls upon you to believe on Him. That is all. That's the only useful response. And so, if any of you are not confident, you know Christ. The, if you're here in person or watching online, the call from the Scripture is to believe in Him today. John chapter eight, verse twenty-four. I want you to hear this from Jesus Himself. In John eight twenty-four, Jesus said, "I told you that you would die in your sins." Same as if perishing here. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So Christ is calling us to believe in Him, to put all of our full trust in Him, so for Him to rescue us from all of our sins. If you're not sure what that involves, come find me. Come find Rick, who prayed earlier. Jeff, one of our elders down here. Come find us after the service. Talk to us. We want to point you to the hope of Christ. But I know most of you, and I see the fruit of righteousness in your life. I see the fruit of God's grace. And I said, what does this text mean for us, How does this text shape us and help us? Well, can I suggest two things this morning that this text should do for us? Number one, it should help us regain a right perspective on the non-believers around us. It should help us regain a right perspective on the non-believers around us. Friends, I don't know about you, if you're like me, it can become really easy to get mad at lostness around us, can't it? To get mad when, whether it's in the government or whether it's the person at the store or the, or the person on the customer service into the line in another country, whatever... And we get really mad at when lost people act like lost people. And so, the question for us is are we angry at the losses around us, or are we broken by it? Are we angry because of the losses around us and the world is not perfect and non believers have done bad things, or do we feel broken by it? Our prayer for us is what, which is what Paul says in Romans 9, in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. You have this beautiful demonstration of what our heart should be. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying that's not possible. He said, if there's some way I could give up my salvation and go to hell myself so that all the people around me could find Christ, I would be willing to do, to do that. That should be our heart attitude to the lost, so not be angry because of the lostness around us, but be broken because of the lostness. Around us, But the second thing this should lead us to do, it should lead us to seek to share Christ with the lost. It should lead us to seek to share Christ with the lost. Friends, if it is true that whoever does not put their faith in Christ is justly condemned already and forever, and that is true, then the most selfish thing we can do is keep our mouth shut. The most unloving thing we can do is to keep our mouth shut and to not share the hope of Christ with those that God has put in our lives who are on the way to this eternal destiny. So often we keep our mouths shut because we're afraid of what they'll think. We keep our mouths shut because we don't want to come across as being judgmental or whatever reason. But friends, when we keep our mouths shut, we're being selfish. We only care about what they think about us versus loving them enough to warn them of what Christ has said. We must love them enough to tell them the hope of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We've read it many times before, but I want to remind us of it. We're told, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We we love this verse because it reminds us of God's grace, and we love to celebrate that, and we should. But verse eighteen carries on. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. The problem is we often put a period right there, and we fixate, which we again we should celebrate and rejoice in this that He's reconciled us to Himself. We are new in Christ. There's so much to rejoice and celebrate. But notice what follows. And He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He saved us and has sent us out. He's not just saved us for us. He saved us to make Him known, His glory known. Verse nineteen. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's what John 3.16 is all about. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Friends, let that sink in. God's heart is for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. For all the nations to know him. And we know that day will happen. But his plan to get it to the nations is to work through our mouths. For us to make him known, to share his glory, the hope of him with others. He's entrusted to us. God has entrusted us something He wants us to do with, and that's to make Him known. Now, verse 20, the last one. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Notice this word. We implore you. We don't hint at it. We don't hope that they just ask questions because we're really kind to them. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Friends, if there are non-believers in our lives, in our homes, In our workplaces, in our schools, in our dormitories, in our neighborhood that we meet at Walmart or people at restaurants we meet regularly, whatever. If they're there, they're there by the sovereign plan of God for us to be His ambassador, to implore them to be reconciled to God. So what does this John 3 text do for us? It calls us to start praying for opportunities to share Christ. It starts calling us to pray for boldness to do so. Don't you see something from Ephesians chapter 6? This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote so much in the New Testament, this great, bold Apostle. Notice what he prays here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He's instructing believers to pray at all times in the Spirit with all types of prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So he's giving this big call to believers to keep on praying and keep on praying. Now, what should they pray about? Verse 19, he gives a specific request. Pray for me. So just pause here. Here's the Apostle Paul humbling himself to the believer saying, I need your prayers. He's not above humbling himself and saying, I need help with something, church. Come pray for me as well. And what's he asking for prayer? That words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, when I read Paul's writings, he's not the one I would think would need help being bold about the gospel. But this is what the Apostle Paul's praying. He says to the people in Ephesus, please, please pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And look at verse 20 when he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Do you realize what that means? That Paul struggled at times to make Christ known the way he realized he should, just like you and I do as well. And he asked the church to pray for him that he might be bold to proclaim the gospel as he ought to do friends if paul needed prayer for that how much more do you and i need prayer for that today and so what do we do with this text from john if we're not a believer we repent and believe in christ if we are a believer we let it reshape our view of the lost we become broken over losses not angry at losses It leads it should lead us then to run to losses to do what paul's talking about here to to pray about being bold and making christ known and just, friends what would happen this week if each one of us started out our day saying lord You've called me to be an ambassador for you. Would you today give me an opportunity to make you known? And Lord, would you make me bold in that moment that I wouldn't be afraid of what they think, I wouldn't back down, but Lord, that I would be bold in this opportunity. Friends, what would happen if we began every day asking Lord for opportunities and asking for boldness to run through them? For which I'm an ambassador of change, I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Whoever, friends, does not put their faith in Christ is justly condemned already and forever. I pray that this... Truth would make us incredibly thankful for our own salvation, but drive us out to make Christ known to whoever the non-believers are that he has sovereignly put in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word tells us exactly what we need to know, that your word just doesn't tell us just the happy, feel-good things, but tells us the reality of how your world operates. And Lord, as we come through some really hard things today, I know this is not a feel-good, upbeat, happy message today. This truth, Lord, we need to be rooted in. So Lord, I pray for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters that you would root us in these truths. Lord, that we would be rooted in understanding your holiness and your justice and your righteousness. We'd be rooted in understanding our own sinfulness, our own depravity, our own hopelessness apart from you reaching out to us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not really have this type of saving faith that we've been seeing this morning, I pray that they wouldn't just keep pondering or thinking about it. but today will be the day of salvation for them. I pray that today... They would cry out to you and find the sweetness of forgiveness, knowing you're holding us and that you forgive us and that you love us. And, Lord, I pray, though, for those of us who know you, Lord, we confess that we lose sight of this truth. This is not a truth that we spend a lot of time dwelling on and thinking on. And because of that, Lord, we can get the really wrong perspective about lost people around us. So, Lord, would you forgive us for all the missed opportunities that we have? the missed opportunities that we've not pursued would you forgive us for the ways that we've been angry at lostness instead of broken by lostness would you forgive us for not being ambassadors like we should be ambassadors lord i pray for myself lord and pray for each of these brothers and sisters that this week lord as we marvel at our own salvation as we marvel at the fact that we are reconciled to you god that the old is gone the new has come i pray you would not lose sight of the fact that you've given to us the ministry of reconciliation Lord, if that's a ministry that we're supposed to pursue with someone in our own household, a relative, a neighbor, a classmate, a coworker, a, a person in the community we interact with regularly, Lord, you know who they are. Show us this week, Lord, how to be ministers of reconciliation. Show us how to do what Paul was praying, to boldly make known the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, to boldly proclaim it as we ought And so, Lord, I pray that this truth would transform us, would shape us into being a thankful people and also a bold people. Lord, we will give you the praise for what you're doing. And Lord, I pray that particularly this week, Lord, that we might have the opportunity, each and every one of us, to make Christ known to someone who needs to hear. And what I pray even this week that someone here at Gateway will get the joy and privilege of seeing a person go from darkness to light. Lord, that this week in your sovereign plan as you work through us. Lord, we know we can't save anyone else. We can't even save ourselves. But Lord, we get to be your mouthpieces. So Lord, this week, would you let someone here at Gateway, Lord, have the joy of not just being the mouthpiece, but seeing you work through our mouth and you drawing the loss to yourself. And Lord, we know all around the city are so, so many who need the gospel. And Lord, all around this world are people groups, some who have never even heard the name of Jesus. But would you be growing us as a church, Or to, to be involved in missions locally and globally, be pushing us outside of our comfort zones, Lord, to be bold witnesses for you wherever you take us, that your kingdom might advance, that people who are not worshiping you might worship you because, Lord, you deserve their praise. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we sing our closing song this morning. We're going to sing a song called Build My Life. And there's a line we're going to sing that I pray would be all of our prayers. We're going to sing, I will build my life upon your love. But then it leads to this this line, lead me in your love to those around me. Would you make that your prayer as we sing this morning? Lord, lead us in your love to those around us. Let's worship the Lord together.
1: Ever seen. Worthy of all the praise we could ever. There's no one like you there is none beside
0: Take a moment and pray, and let's begin just individually praying and thanking God for rescuing us from our sin and saving us. Would you begin there? And just take a moment where you're standing, thank God for the salvation He's given to you. Thinking of what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, he's reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Would you pray and ask him to help you grow in being a minister of reconciliation to the lost? take just a minute now and there's certain non-believers the lord has put on your heart friends family members co-workers others take a minute go ahead and lift into the lord in prayer just take one more minute and just praise God for his grace. He's not showing us these hard truths to to put on a brokenness for brokenness sake. He's doing this because he loves us. So take a minute and celebrate his grace and rest in his grace for just a minute. thankful for your grace your grace that looked upon wretched sinners like us and saved us and your grace that still that looks upon us with eyes of love even when we fall short of what you desire to, so even when we struggle with sin even when we struggle to be the witnesses you desire us to be we're thankful that your love god is not based on our performance god your love is unconditional and i pray this week that we would rest as your people and a people who have experienced your grace we're not having to feel like we have to do stuff to get to you, but Lord, that we would this week just experience you holding us and your grace overflowing in us. And God, that your love would then drive us to make you known. Oh Lord, you are so good. Help us rest in that goodness and let it overflow this week in opportunities to point others to the hope that we have found, that they might join us in worshiping you, the one true God. And God, we will give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.